Well, I think we would be remiss if I didn't mention Memorial Day being tomorrow. You know, a lot of people don't even know what Memorial Day is, and I get that. We, we haven't had the kind of war that uh, the Civil War was when they first implemented it, when so, so, so many families across our country uh, were devastated just by one more of those examples of the horror that war is and just the example of the curse that it, it demonstrates to us every time it happens. And yet, uh, for those uh, even among us now who lost loved ones in a war or even in their history lost someone, those, those absences always leave a great hole in the heart of a lot of people. And it ought to be a time that not only do we honor those people that sacrificed their life in war, it ought to be a time that we reflect on just all of those who make great sacrifices uh, in their conviction what they think is important and do it for the greater good of communities and their families and other people. Um, so I, I hope that tomorrow that you will just kind of pause and reflect on that and and pray to thank God that there are people willing to follow conviction and do what's right. And rarely is there any great sense of right in anything about war. And the call, that the, the challenge it brings to us, knowing what to do, when to intervene. Uh, our country really struggled with intervening in uh, what Hitler was doing in Europe and trying to figure out, so what do we do? Do we just let him continue to annihilate a whole race of people? Is that the right thing? Or do we go into this bloody battle and send some of our best young, and men, young men and women over to fight on our behalf and their families to give them up? What's right in that? And in this war that we live in, that we're constantly facing those tough decisions being someone that was a young man and subject to the draft during that horrible Vietnam War that so many of us still remember, um, we know that it wasn't just those that died that suffered. It was a lot of those that came back that suffered the most, and they're still suffering. Because it was a war that we were seen as having lost, not because they lost anything, but because it was a political war that was just feeding people into a, an awful place. But nonetheless, you know, we need to pause and just be thankful for people that sacrifice. The Union soldiers, they had to decide, are we going to go into war with our own people for this greater good? And most people, when they fight a war, they're, they're just fighting for what they've been taught. The jihadists are fighting because they've grown up in a world and they've been taught an ideology, and you can be hateful on that. And it's the same with what was going on in the South during slavery, and it was the same that was going on in Africa when they were selling their own people into slavery. It's evil came on the world and God promised and the day you eat of that you will die. And humanity is dying a million deaths a day over the problem of sin and we still continue to support it and play with it as Christians. Our job is something else. So just a, a thought about Memorial Day and just the, the importance it is to us as a people. Our Lord's Day is a constant Memorial Day for us in remembering the resurrection of Jesus, which was a resurrection from a horrible crime, that he was tortured and butchered and died as if he committed all of our sins. It would also be probably a bit remiss for me not mention that this is my last official Sunday as the senior pastor of this church. Uh, promised myself I'm not going to get emotional. Uh, I'm not going anywhere uh, other than doing what I've been doing. But I am officially handing off the mantle to Aaron and Kale and Garrett, as well as Tori and other senior ministers in this church. We, in this last uh, year, uh, Jack and Danny and John have handed off the mantle of the 
superintending part of the eldership to currently uh, Jeff and John Ganster. And we have five deacons that are working with them with a shepherding team. The things we set out to begin over a year ago in transitioning this church, uh, we're, we're completing. But you need to know we're not going anywhere. The three elders that have served here so faithfully all these years, um, our hats off to them. This, is, this has been a lot of fun in a lot of ways, but it has been hellish in other ways, and you need to know that. Uh, we have been taken to the brink ourselves many times. Uh, we've not always liked each other. We've not always enjoyed what we do, but we've always been committed to what God called us to do. And it has been a huge honor for me to, uh, to get to be what God promised me in a dream five years before this all started when he told me in a dream, showed me in a dream he was going to start a church and I was going to get to be a part of it. And I'm thankful I've gotten to be that. So, so the three elders, they're elder emeritus. They're not going anywhere. Those of you that have looked to them and looked to them for advice, they're going to be here for you. I'm going to be here for you. Um, I'm stepping back out into my evangelist role and going to be serving all of the churches and focus as I've been doing for a lot of years. And that will be... Uh, my uh, ride off into the horizon. I intend to do that until I can't do that anymore. Um, so that's where we are. I'm super excited. The church has grown. There are some huge decisions coming up. All are exciting. You guys know we're full. Very few churches can do what we do. But the massive changes that are coming, uh, you guys, there's a tsunami behind you, baby boomers. You just don't realize it. Uh, I don't know. We probably have uh, 30 or more kids under three, I would guess, uh, is a fair estimate. And when you look at a church our size, and we just prayed for uh, six um, uh, pregnancies, I say six, five pregnancies with six babies involved, uh, all of our churches are doing that. And uh, the marriages just keep coming, and that's what I promised the elders years ago, if you will stay with me. Um, in this focus thing and what we're doing, we'll have graduations and then we'll have weddings and then we'll have babies and then the loop is finished. If you looked up here this morning at the praise team, 25 years ago, some of these kids weren't even born yet. Uh, Kylie was one of our babies when we started Northeast who led our praise today. Um, it's happening. Uh, we're five churches now. We're 13 or 14 campus ministries, depending on what they're doing at the time, continuing to expand. We're talking about our next move as a church. What are we going to do here? We've got several things going on that we're working on. But you see, we've got this focus ministry. This church turns over about 75% every five or six years. Uh, that's how we've planted and we've grown and we've changed. But the DNA has always stayed the same because our DNA is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. None of us are. And we're going to do our best to serve him. So this church has been an engine that has continued to drive so much. Uh, I can't thank you enough. Uh, as I say, there's just the greatest honor is being Tana's husband and my kid's dad. The second greatest honor is being your pastor. We've been talking about this Seeing Jesus series. Those of you that know me know I love this stuff, and I, um, I just rather talk about Jesus than all the other stuff we kind of have to talk about sometime because as a little boy taught me in children's Bible hour when I was but a college student, the answer to every question is ultimately God, just God. I was touched a, a few years ago, and I'll mention it again in 2017. Brandon gave me a book. Uh, it's a memoir of Brennan Manning called All His Grace. And uh, he said he just felt led to, to get me this book, that there was some echoes, I suppose, in what Manning was saying uh, that made him think of my own story. And I put it in my reading stack, and one morning I got up, and I was just trying to 
kind of think about what I was going to do in my, my morning time that I, I have most mornings. And that morning, it was that book. I just looked over, I said, this is it. And I read this book. I was going to read a chapter and I read the whole book. It took me about three hours. You know how that works. It's not a long book, but it's a, for those of us that have lived a few years, there's no adult in here that's, you know, over 45 or 50 that wouldn't be drawn into it and looking at your own life and story and hearing those similar kinds of things. Very different, but very similar. But the title of his memoir is simply All is Grace. And today we're going to be talking from the Jesus series about seeing God's grace. Next week I'm also going to preach. I don't know how I managed to preach two weeks in a row. These guys are trying to get rid of me, but uh, I, I don't force myself anymore. They've been in charge for a long time. But I'm going to preach on seeing God's love. Um, I was just thrilled when I saw what the sermons were. Um, the Seeing Jesus series, I want to remind you, is a series that Garrett kind of arranged for us as a family of churches in focus. One more of those studies, it's very different. It's designed to be used by two people one-on-one in a, in a relationship of any kind. It can be used for someone who doesn't really know God that you're trying to share your faith with. It can be among two of you. It could be used in your small groups. But it's not really a study that's designed to just be taught per se. It's, it's a study designed for us to learn together and looking at some important stories in each lesson and then asking ourselves the questions as the narrative invites us in to think about it and say, so what is this telling us? It's on our church website at the northeastchurch.com. Uh, You can go there. If you'll scroll down to resources, uh, you'll see Seeing Jesus is on there. You'll see Focus on Jesus is on there, which is a study that Focus designed for us um, to use in a similar fashion, but especially with people who are really trying to come to know Jesus. Out in the lobby, there is a workbook that I designed years ago called Discovering Jesus that is designed for self-study. It's much more extensive. It's not for weaklings. It's designed for people that are serious about trying to understand seeing Jesus uh, in the Bible, discovering Jesus. So just some of those things we wanted to make sure that you knew about. I was instructed by Garrett to do this and to do it fast as they made fun of me in my 30-minute introductions. Uh, Sorry, I'm just uh, who I am. The two texts in this story, the first is about, uh, we call it the story of the adulterous woman. It's a story about where some men bring a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and bring them to Jesus. Jesus was already recognized as a rabbi or a teacher of the law, and they would bring uh, people to them sometime and say, what are we supposed to do? Now, they weren't serious. They didn't care anything about this woman. They cared about getting to Jesus, and they were trying to trap him. And they said, hey, good guy, you that talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, what are you going to do with this? Here's a woman we have caught in the act of adultery. The law says she's supposed to be stoned. I think what we see in this story is one of these crucial existential moment clashes in Jesus who was fully man and fully God. Because here's what the law commanded. Here is what it was worthy of. But we all need to remember that every one of our sins is adultery and they're all worthy of death. But nonetheless, this was their civil and moral law that God had given to Israel to govern them as he used them to bring about Christ into the kingdom of Christ. I think Jesus, there's a lot of speculation about what was he writing in the ground? And I've heard different things. Uh, But it's all speculation. But for me... I think it's one of those moments that all of us as leaders and as parents sometimes face where we're brought into these great tensions that we live in in a 360 degree life between good and evil, right and wrong, fair and just, merciful. You know what? We're caught all the time to make a decision. 
Here's a woman, she was worthy of death, and the law commanded death, and Jesus came to fulfill that law. What are we going to do? Well, I can promise you, I've been in those moments many times, what am I going to do? And I promise our leaders have, and I promise every parent here has spent some really miserable times trying to figure out what are we going to do? Mercy or justice? And so Jesus did that as they all with bated breath stood waiting, obviously eager to kill her or kill him or kill somebody. And he writes in the ground, then he stands up and he said, okay, whoever is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus didn't say, don't stone her. And he didn't quite quote the law that said those that witnesses through the first stones. He said, let whoever's without sin cast the first stone. Well, again, then they faced that existential conundrum of humanity. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond to this great mysterious God that is so beyond us and at times completely blows our mind as he has through the ages with people? as we've tried to define him and box him into our human definitions and categories so that we can somehow control him and in doing so create our own little ideological idols. Capitalism versus socialism. Our religions, our philosophies, all the things that flow out of humans trying to do our deal. All we find out is the guys leave from the oldest to the youngest. Well, I can tell you, you can't teach old dogs new tricks, but old dogs know tricks you young guys don't know. <laughs> and one of those things is we know when to walk away a lot faster than you do, don't we, Bob? We know when it's time to walk away. They're all gone. He stands up and says, where are your accusers, lady? She says, they're all gone. You can only imagine how she felt. I I can't even personally as a man imagine how she felt. The embarrassment, the humiliation, the reality, thinking about what's everybody in town going to say again. Around us, it's going to be what's social media going to say about us. He said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus not condemning her was no more merciful than telling her to leave this life you're living. All of it was mercy. Another chance, another opportunity. The law said if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Leviticus 20.20 And that is in the midst of a whole lot of other sins that we turn blind's eye to every day. This woman was a pawn. That's all she was, and that's when you live in sin. That's all you are to Satan. You're being used. And in our society today, all of these ideologies are using you. When you hear young people spouting off about things they couldn't possibly know anything about. How many of us are specialists at same-sex attraction or transgenderism? How many have ever sat and had a single conversation with somebody that was same-sex attracted or considered them transgender? And yet we spout so knowledgeably like we know something. Well, until you face people sometime, you need to be really humble and realize there's a whole lot you don't know about a whole lot of stuff. I don't know what it feels like to grow up black. And as a white man, I can only imagine some of the things you've dealt with. I don't know what it feels like to be an undocumented person in this country. I don't know. I don't know the desperation. I don't know the reason. I don't know the reason why that dude went, flew past me and cut in front of me. I don't know what's going on. And yet we act like we know so much about so many things when it calls every day to just so much humility. The adulterous man in this, unsurprisingly and hypocritically, is not present, which is 
again, no surprise. It's an existential story. It's the story of each one of us. This is you. This is me. Not just in the woman, but in the accusers. The hypocrisy, the judgmentalism, the harshness, the hatred that we spew out sometimes and try to consecrate with our concern for people. When often it's not. The second story is, and that story, by the way, is in John 8, the first few verses of, of John. Did I say that right? John 8. I want to make sure I'm getting. The second is the story of what we call this merciful king and this unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, 23 to 25. And this tells a story of this king. Now, when we think of king, don't think of the king or queen of England here. That's. This is a very different culture. They would probably think of these little tin-horned dictators like Herod and others who were out there, and they would kind of get their little territory, maybe even a warlord in the Middle East. And, and these were not people that were voted on. They took over and they amassed great wealth for themselves and technically considered everything theirs. But they would loan these poor servants some money here and there and make deals with them and bribe them and all kinds of stuff. And for some reason, this tin-horned king decided he wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, these kind of kings were nothing much more than what we saw when the, the, the black slaves were emancipated and yet not taught how to read or write or live in a country that they didn't ask to be in. And then they were made uh, uh, allowed to be sharecroppers. And they would amass these great debts at the company store and the Jim Crow laws, and it was just as bad and in many ways worse than what they had been in before. But nonetheless, this merciful king, and I want you to get the picture here because you're the king, and you're this first servant, and you're going to be the second servant, and you're everybody else around. We all are all of these people. One way or another. He decides to collect his debts and settle things, so he brings us in this one guy, and it's, it's a, a hyperbole, this ten bags of of gold or ten talents and you know no one knows exactly how much that was but one commentator I read one time said it was probably about uh, 200,000 years worth of their salary so what they're saying is it's a debt you're not going to pay off period and this he begs this king to forgive him give him time He's going to pay it back. That's, that's what salvation by works is, guys. If you think you can be good enough to earn this, it is an utter joke. You're paying pennies on billions. You can't even make the interest payment. It's ridiculous. This death that we die in Christ is impossible. And so the guy forgives it. He just forgives it. He took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, this sorry dude goes out, I guess reminded about somebody owing him something, finds another guy, taxed the guy who owed him just a little bit, and demanded that he pay it back immediately. Well, the guy says, I can't. He asked the same thing. Be patient with me, and I'll pay it back. And he probably couldn't pay it back either. We all have that friend. Maybe you are that friend. They're going to borrow some money and they're going to pay you back. It reminds me of John Von Runnen. Don't ever loan John anything. <laughs> not only will he not pay it back, he'll put his name on it. And you'll go over and that's my share, John. <laughs> but John is just so dadgum sweet, he gets by with this crap. I can't get by with anything. <laughs> no, trust me, I've gotten, back, gotten it back in triplicate over the years. Many of you don't know John. He's our senior pastor at... Wiley, he's also Kylie's dad, uh, who is a pillar in our churches, but he still doesn't pay stuff back. <laughs> the guy wouldn't forgive him, had him thrown in debtor's prison, of all things. Well, the other servants were appalled, and so they went and told on him. I don't blame them, I'd want to tell on them too. 
And so the king, you know, he was ticked off, called this guy back in and called him a wicked servant. And he said, I canceled your debt. And then he reinstated it. There's a whole lot of theological implication here for all of us. If you grew up Baptist, this is a little shaky on your once saved, always saying that God cannot reinstate your debt, reinstitute your debt. But if you're a Church of Christ person like I was when I was a kid, uh, the, the thought that you can ever be right because you're right is saying you're never going to be right because you're right because you're always wrong anyway, and you certainly are not going to pay off this debt. That's silly. These stories smack at all of our simplistic answers that try to put God in our little boxes as if we can control him. Here's what we all know. God is sovereign. God is good. And it turns out the way he wants it. And you better deal with him. Because when the woman woke up and she's standing there, she's just facing Jesus. The day's going to come when as the world has commanded you, it's going to be you there and you're going to be standing with Jesus. And there's one vote that matters. That's why we make it our aim to please him. Not anybody else. Let God be true and every man a liar. Suffice it to say that our Bible is a story of humanity's fall from this relationship with God based on grace through faith. There is no other way to be in a relationship with God than that he extends you forgiveness. Salvation is pure and simply when God cancels your debt. And don't think he can't reinstitute it. As Jesus said in his model prayer, if you do not forgive others' sins against you, your Father in heaven will not forgive yours. This was said to God's people, and it was written in a gospel to God's people to get our attention to say, this is a big deal to God. But it's this glorious deal. Because if you can get grace, which I spent a lot, my first really three decades of my Christian life trying to work my way out of this fundamentalism that is just Christian Phariseeism, justifying God. I could not be saved by those systems. I was too messed up. My brain was pureed. It still is. As Manning's story goes, he wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel, if some of you might know that more than his name. He had a conflicted relationship with his mother, and he describes it all the way through, a stern, harsh woman as he saw her, and it impacted him like all of those relationships impact us through the years as they have opportunity to do that. And at the very end, as he's aging, he, he goes back to his mother's funeral and gets drunk that morning and sleeps through it. It doesn't end with this tale of this guy that's the hero that rides off on the white horse. It, it ends up with a guy that needed God's grace more in the end than he did in the beginning. That's how I feel. And that's not rhetoric. It's the tale of two trees. There was always a right one and a wrong one. The apprentices know this very well, right? There's a right one. It's the tree of life. Eat of it. It's God. It's Jesus. It's life. God is about life. He's about life. He is life. And He wants you to have it eternal life. It's not contingent. It's not contingent on anything but Him. Breathe Him in. And this other tree... It's the tree of death. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It represented humans choosing humanity over God. It is humanism. It's the age-old and original sin that we can do it ourselves. This is wrong. We continue to suffer death for it as humans. But God continues to offer life through Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, even though they die, they will live. The day that you come to Jesus is the day that you are born again into eternal life. It's eternal. Even though the life that you have here is wasting away because of the old order, you are being brought into this glorious new humanity, into the age of the come, to have things that are so much better. There's no comparison between your daily little sufferings and what's going to be given you. Small change, no comparison. There are these two God-given choices that we have. We're made in God's image. We have to trust Him completely or we don't trust Him at all. A half-hearted trust in God is no trust at all. It's a full trust in you and your own thoughts. Well, just a few key thoughts here about this. Number one, God is a God of amazing grace. And he calls each one of us to be people of amazing grace. Are you a woman or man of amazing grace? Are you able to look gracefully at the liberal on the left side who believes that in transgenderism? Are you able to look with grace at the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the MAGA people? Can you look at grace with them and see they are products of how they were raised? They were taught something and they're being played. Are you able to look at people that are a part of the NRA and love to hunt and believe that that's important and that's a neat thing and also believe the government shouldn't have all the guns because governments have a much worse record of killing people and mass killings than any human ever could? That's who's slaughtering people. Russia is slaughtering people in Ukraine. Now, can you look gracefully at people that take an ideological view? And can you look gracefully at those poor high school kids that were marching on Washington wanting to get rid of guns, kids that couldn't possibly have understood the, 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 the deal that we face in this country over the Second Amendment? Can you look with grace at people? Do you have a heart of grace that wants to forgive? God wants to forgive you. Do you want to forgive people? There's nothing more deadly than not forgiving people. It is our greatest crime. It's our greatest challenge. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It destroys people. It kills people. People are bitter and they're angry. And when Christians speak out into that, our venom and our anger and our self-righteousness, we're only adding fuel to this fire. We are to be the peacemakers, the light, the salt. The energy, the hope, the grace in this world. We get to be that. It's okay. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've told people who are bitter to parents that have really abused them or hurt them, to people that have molested them and scarred them for life, for people whose mate has committed adultery and broken their vows and their heart. And just said, you know, it's okay to just forgive them. It's okay just to forgive them, to see them start crying, to be given permission just to forgive someone. No one could have made me more miserable than my dad did. But it was okay for me just to forgive him. He gave me better than he got. And he gave me the best he had. That's all he could give, right? I'm here. It's okay just to forgive people. There's an obvious conjecture in what Jesus was doing riding on the ground. And there's going to be this obvious conjecture in your own heart about what should you do. Because there are things that are right and wrong. Not everything, because I can forgive something, doesn't make it okay. It was just as graceful for Jesus to forgive the woman and not condemn her as it was to tell her to stop sinning. Guys, I see people coming in counseling and they're wanting healing and they're poisoning themselves every day in the same thing. 
You're never going to be okay if you hate your parents. You're never going to be okay. It's going to bring all kinds of stuff on you. You're never going to be okay if you hurt your ex-mate. I mean, you hate your ex-mate or your kids or anybody else in your world. If you're resentful and angry and complaining and think you deserve what? You don't deserve anything but eternal destruction. That's all any of us deserve, right? So any good thing we get is gravy. It's a gift of God. It's all grace. Jesus was the only begotten of God. Jesus wasn't created. He was God's substance being birthed into this world. He is God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. How does God do that? I have not a clue. I don't even have a clue how God used Tan and me to make four little kids and now six little grandbabies. I don't understand any of that. I don't know how God made people so smart that they could figure out how to do IVF, which is where our little twins are coming from. But he did. And Jesus, the Son of God, became man so that each of us could become sons of God. It's conflict. Jesus knew it was a conflict. But as God, Jesus knew that from the beginning, this creation plan took into account that humans were going to fall. God wasn't surprised by our fall. Disappointed by it? Hurt by it? I, why did he create us? I, I don't know. Go read Job and see if you want to keep asking that in an accusatory tone. <laughs> I don't. I've studied science. I've studied philosophy. I've studied business. I've studied psychology. And the wisest thing I know today is Jesus really is Lord. He really is completely unbelievable in human terms. Completely unbelievable. But when you look at the spiritual laws, it's the only thing that is believable. Revelations 13.8 said, Jesus is the lamb that was crucified from the foundation of the world. And as Jesus grew into the realization of who he was, as Hebrews says, though he were the son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to those that obey him. Jesus as a man had to grasp his sonship, who he really is. The question is, do you grasp who you really are? that you are a spirit made in the image of God. You were not made to live like pigs and dogs and rats. You were not made to be some insect that goes through its little life cycle to live one day to fertilize an egg or to lay an egg and then die. You have something much more you're invited into, this thing, eternal life, eternal life, the kingdom of God. This is a big deal. Do you know who you are? When Jesus came up out of the water, God affirmed him from heaven saying, you are my son. Did you get it, Jesus? You are the begotten of God in this world. And his first test was to be questioned by that. Jesus, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself off this corner of the temple and let's see if the angels show up. Messiah, you want to run the world? Hey, let me show you. I've already got it and I'll give it to you right now and you don't have to go through anything. There's a cost to sonship. And nobody can give you anything eternal but God. But the wrong choice causes us to see God as unmerciful and to be unmerciful ourselves. 
The right choice causes us to see God, ourselves, and others through the eyes of God. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of God controls us. Because we are convinced that one died for all because all have died. And he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, from now on we look at no one through a human perspective. Even though there was a time we looked at Christ from that selfish human perspective. We don't do that anymore. Don't do that. We see people through the eyes of Christ. As I've said, I wrote my gospel out there in a book called Seeing God, Seeing You. That book was, was written with, in blood of me trying to see God differently than I saw my own dad and all the other dads around rather than feeling stupid and ugly and unwanted as I felt so often. See, I'm everything but that to God. I'm anything but that, that God cares about the shape and beauty of my heart, who I really am more than he does about the shape and some supposed beauty of my body, which is wasting away every day. See, the reality is God is rich in mercy, not poor at it, which is what I thought. Ephesians 2, verse 4, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 1 verse 4, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Does that sound like God is poor in mercy? And He's calling you to be just like Him. Are you rich in mercy? Are you quick to forgive? There's no freedom in holding grudges. Only slavery and bitterness. Listen to me, people. It's okay just to forgive them. It's the right thing, actually. Glorious grace, freely given, riches of God's grace lavished on us. Does that sound like most Christians... But the beauty of this is, if you're feeling guilty right now, just confess it to Jesus and it's gone. It's just gone. He already sees you as holy and blameless in His sight. Don't worry, I'm just barely contagious still. (laughs) But it's a gift to you today. The second thing is our relationship with God depends completely on our trust in Him and never in ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that famous summary of the gospel, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not by work so that no one can boast because we are God's workmanship created in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What He called you is to completely and squarely believe that He is Lord and therefore He can save you completely. And that you trust He can and that He wants to. That He wants to save you. Any godly parent wants to forgive their sins. I have had to forgive my sins of peeing on me, pooping on me, puking on me, putting their hands in places other people are not supposed to put their hands on other people. What in the world is happening here? You are being, you know, deeply abused if you're a parent. It's just part of it. (laughs) There was never a day that I thought about not. 
Pat and I prayed we could have kids. It was the greatest privilege. We're made in God's image. Our world today is the opposite of everything Jesus was. It requires a very determined, intentional action to do anything else. I started preaching my hour of sermons here, and I'm trying not to do another hour of sermon to end this, but, you know, I'm old and inappropriate, so just... Uh, that's my excuse today. It wasn't when I started. I was just 45, but I'm hurrying here. The free speech, the media, social media, this condemnation culture that we live in. We're mostly ignorant people, so stop showing it. Stop demonstrating it. My Angelou said, when people show you who they are, just believe them. Well, quit showing who you are as being an unforgiving, ignorant, evil person. Don't speak into that. Let your conversation be seasoned with salt. You be the peacemaker. What's that look like? Well, sometimes you're just going to need to stoop down and write in the ground and figure it out. Ask God. How many stories could be told that would cast us as just as evil as that unmerciful servant who was forgiven so much only to be so horribly unforgiving to another? How many stories could be told about you already, you young people? Those of you that have been around, I don't even need to ask. How many stories do you think might be told if God were to pull back the covers and say, let me tell you what Amy did. Let me tell you this story about Ann right there. Or the guy sitting next to her, Toby. You think this guy's bad? Let me tell you what Shen Fen did. Let me, let me just tell you this. Any one of us could be that adulterous woman who have done things worthy of death. You think because you haven't looked at porn lately that you're better than the person that is so dadgum greedy that they're wallowing in wealth while people starve to death? You think you're better? Oh, no, that's all of us. <laughs> this is all of us. Modern stonings, we're so quick to condemn. Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Donald Trump, all these people, if we were there, we would be so much better, wouldn't we? If the world would just let me be God, I'd fix it all. I've got it figured out. I understand gun rights. I got that figured out. I can solve the serial killer problem, the mass shooting problem, the war problem. I can settle all of these ancient wars going on between the Palestinians and the Israelis. I can fix it all. You go just think for just a second about God's perspective and then get on your knees and apologize for acting that way. Quit trying to play God even in your own life or the lives of people around you. Husbands, what qualification do you have to tell your wife how to live? Wives, what qualification do you really have to instruct your husband on his flaws? Children that don't have children, what qualification do you have to criticize your parents? Do you know anything they've been through? Do you know the cost, the prayers, the time? Do you know the sleepless nights they've spent? The, the times they've been so worried about you they couldn't breathe? Do you have any idea? No, you don't. You don't know what it's like to be black. But those of you that are black don't know what it's like to be a 70-year-old white pastor just trying to figure out how to do ministry in a world that is so complicated. And I grew up on a little dirt road in a racist, all-white area of ignorant people mostly. And God called me to try to do something, to try to deal with people like Sirach, who's smarter than me, wiser than me, that's walked a completely different road than I walked. To speak into Tori's life, who's become like a daughter to me, who walked down a completely different road in the city and try to pastor people. Like Peter comes from a very different world. Or Emily. <laughs> That's us. 
and to be a dad to Brandon, who's very different than Kale, who's very different than Casey, who's very different than Brianna. And then Brandon brings Sarah into our family. Sorry. <laughs> Were you waiting on that? I had to break this or I'm going to cry. But listen to me, church, the pastors around here, we can't compete with social media. If you're looking at social media an hour or two a day, we can't compete. We can't pour enough spirit into you to counter that toxic effect of all of that. This media, the, this election that's coming up, we, we can't counter it. It's going to be hateful and vile and evil. There's plenty of evil to go around in every family in every person, in every ideology, in every country, in every region. God wants you to speak grace into it, not hate, not anger, not venom, grace and peace. He is the Prince of Peace and we're his followers. The man who attacked that woman and tried to get her stoned, were victims of a powerful ideology in Israel. People who were simply playing them to get them to do their bidding so they could maintain power. In the same way, young people, y'all are being played by education. Those of you that listen to Fox News, you're being played. You're being played All of this misinformation, it's a joke. Satan is the father of lies. You think misinformation is new? It's just a new way we frame it. There's one truth, and that's Jesus. And we need to make sure we're spending more time thinking about him than we are about some election that's going to come and go. I have one president, and I've had him for 50 years, and that's Jesus. And I'm going to go to his kingdom where he's going to always be president, and I hope that you'll go with me. The merciful king cast as a good guy here was not good. We say, well, this is God. Well, it's only God in the sense that he's demonstrating this hyperbolic forgiveness. That's it. Beyond that, he was conjuring up the story of someone that's, these weren't good people. The rich guy was collecting money from a bunch of glorified slaves that he, in effect, already owned. He did, not, he did show him mercy over the debt, but even the debt was not fair. It was the country store. It was the county store. It was the company store that the poor slave copper, croppers were just trying to feed their family on and building up a debt and then getting it collected. The merciful king, it's each of us. Injustice is a part of this fallen, corrupt world. You're going to be wronged a whole lot of times. None of us were supposed to be cut off on the freeway by rude people. None of us were supposed to have our heart broken by a mate who was unfaithful. None of us is supposed to have a kid look in our face and tell us they hate us. And we go on, you know, you know. We weren't supposed to be born thinking we're a woman if we're a man or thinking we're a man if we're a woman. We weren't supposed to be. We're not, we're not supposed to be attracted to the same sex. But we're also not supposed to be attracted to a woman that's not our wife or a man that's not our husband. We're not supposed to want to lie. We're not supposed to be people that want power and control. We're not supposed to be any of that. But we are. The million deaths. Yes, indeed, God is a God of indescribable, incredible, indescribable grace, and He calls us to be like Him in that. It took Him to His cross, and it calls each of us to our own cross because there is a cost to it, which leads me to this last point. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. Jesus told the apostles before he went to Jerusalem to finally bring reconciliation to what he came to do, which was to die on a cross and be raised. He said, the Son of God is going to have to go down. I'm going to have to suffer, be rejected, 
executed, crucified, and then raised on the third day. I'm sure they were like, what in the world strategy is this, which he'd been telling them all along. And then he said, and whoever of you wants to follow me, you're going to have to take up your, deny yourself and take up your cross. Take up your cross. This is your cross, not his cross. The love of God gives you a choice. Love requires that it's a love of the will. And if you can't will it, you can't do it. God has given you this glorious opportunity to be like him in his choice. Jesus said, I have the choice to lay down my life and have the choice to take it up again. And he's giving each of us a choice. It's your cross. And are you willing to hang on it? It's a cross that says you're going to forgive people that have harmed you in such a way that it's as if you committed the sin. I've apologized to people that I know good and well that the greater sin was on their part who never apologized back but piled on. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life is going to lose it. Are you saving your life? Are you saving your life for you? Are you what are you protecting? Jesus could have protected himself. He said he could call ten legions of angels to come and wipe out everybody in the territory, but he didn't. He died as if he committed your sins. And you stood on the sideline and watched it, as did I. Jesus would say again in Luke 14, beginning in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot follow me. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. I can't tell you all the things I've been accused of in this church. I want to control everything when I've sent out gobs of people of trying to make a job for my son who we're just trying to build a campus ministry through. Let me go on. Of being a liar, of having ulterior motives. I'm sure I deserved a lot worse, guys. I don't have any illusions. God didn't say, now you come follow me and you get to be perfect. You know what the opposite? Moms don't get to be perfect. (laughs) And it's only when you have one that you realize how bad you are, right, moms? Dads don't get to be perfect. It's only when you have a kid that you realize, oh my gosh, I'm not trained for this. I don't even know how to do this. The first time we changed Brandon's diaper, he peed on us. And he's been doing it ever since. No, I'm <laughs> Quite the opposite. You know, it's not fun being a preacher's kid. Grace is a Greek word that means gift. It's a gift. And it is the most costly gift that can ever be given. Because it takes something of your own heart to just forgive them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, during the time of Hitler and Nazism, wrote a book called Cost of Discipleship, and he wrote about cheap grace, and he said cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism, 
without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great, great price to buy, to buy which the merchant will sell Uh, will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock over and over and over. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is a grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. You were bought with a price. And what cost has God much And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear to pay pay, uh, for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God, and it is the incarnation of God in us. Amen? Amen. When we fail to live lives of deep thankfulness, we cheapen God's grace. When we fail to live sacrificial lives, we cheapen God's grace. When we live lukewarm, half-hearted lives before God, we cheapen God's grace. When we fail to put God's mission on the front burner, but rather put our own life on the front burner, we cheapen God's grace. When we make it all about me and how I feel and what I want and what I think and look at things through what? Through my own eyes, we cheapen God's grace. When we're arrogant, we talk about others, we talk down about others, we cheapen God's grace. When we are critical and demanding, we cheapen God's grace. When the most committed things we do is show up at a convenient church service, at a convenient location, at convenient times, and go to small groups in convenient places, in warm homes, and throw a few bucks toward the needy here and there, we cheapen God's grace. If it's not worth everything, it is not worth anything. It's either worth everything or it's worth nothing. Do you believe it? when we see others sin so quickly and easily and are so slow to see with and deal with our own, we cheapen God's grace. I could go on, and you well know I can. The story of the adulterous woman and her encounter with Jesus, the unmerciful servant who had been forgiven so much to be so unwilling to forgive even a little. They call us to look at God, to look God in the face and ask again as Saul of Tarsus did when he was clotheslined by God, thinking he was doing what was right when in fact he was opposing Jesus. And he said, who are you, Lord? And further, who am I? The scriptures tell us that he is a God of amazing, incredible, unbelievable grace. And that our relationship depends not on our ability to believe in ourselves, but to believe squarely that He is that good. And that grace is cheap, but it's not free. In the beginning of his book, All His Grace, Brennan Manning writes a sort of dedication who his book was written to. He said, This book is by the one who thought he'd be farther along by now, but he is not. It is by the inmate who promised the parole board he'd be good, but he wasn't. It is by the dim-eyed who showed showed the path to others but kept losing his own way. It is by the wet-brained who believed if a little wine is good for the stomach, then a lot is great. It is by the liar, tramp, and thief, otherwise known as the priest, the speaker, and author. It is by the disciple whose cheese slid off his crackers so many times he said to hell with cheese and crackers. It is by the young at heart but old of bone who is led these days in a way he'd rather not go. But 
This book is also for the gentle ones who've lived among wolves. It is for those who've broken free of collar to romp in the fields of love and marriage and divorce. It is for those who mourn, who have been mourning most of their lives, yet they hang on to, you will be comforted. It is for those who've dreamed of entertaining angels, but found instead a few friends of great price. It is for the younger and elder prodigals who've come to see their come to their sense again and again and again and again. It is for those who who uh, stream at pious piffle. This is his words because they've been swallowed by mercy itself. This book is for myself and for those who have been around the block enough times that we dare to whisper the ragamuffins' rumor. All is grace. There's a little song I could sing. Mark and Julie are probably the only people that know it. But it just goes, Have you seen Jesus my Lord? He's here in plain view. Take a look. Open your eyes. He'll show it to you. And then he takes us through this discussion of a beautiful sunset, being on the ocean's shore, looking at the cross. And then he says, have you ever stood in the family with the Lord there in your midst, seen the face of Christ on each other? Then I say, you've seen Jesus, my Lord. And the day is going to come. It's just going to be you and him. And it's only he that can save you. God help us to live as if all is grace. Amen. God bless you.